Well, it's good to see you today. We're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. So I want to encourage you to turn there. It's right before 2 Corinthians. So we can narrow it down a little bit. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking in verses 18 through 31 today. So I want to encourage you to turn there. And what we're going to do is take this passage and look at it in three sections. We're going to look first off at verses 18 and 19. Then we're going to look at verses 20 through 25. And then we'll finish it up with verses 26 through 31. Um, What a powerful passage. He was writing to friends he had loved and lived with for quite some time. Paul didn't stay in places very long, but he stayed in Corinth for quite a while, about a year and a half, and um, had made a couple of other visits there. And he he really loved uh, working, ministering with these people. And you know, uh, Corinth was a, a center of absolute pagan worship. And friends, it has been a blessing to me for 35 years now to know that if God can raise a church in Corinth, he can raise a church anywhere. Amen? And um, we, we get to be blessed by being a part of what he's doing. So we're going to start first off verses 18 and 19. Let's look there and read those two, and then we'll see what God has for us in them. It says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The word of the cross is folly, foolishness. That word is used five times in the New Testament. All five of them are in 1 Corinthians, and three of them are in this passage this morning. What Paul's saying is what you people have going on is a bunch of nonsense. You need to knock this stuff off. And what God is doing is using what the world is going to call nonsense. It's foolishness. How can you, how can you talk to us about somebody that died on a cross and they got up out of the grave? That's nonsense. And yet that is the means by which God is changing lives. And that's what he's telling us here. How many times have you talked with someone, shared your faith with them, and they look at you like you're crazy? They, they tell you that's a bunch of foolishness. How can anybody believe something like that? Those people are fulfilling the God, word of God right there. <laughs> because it says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But you keep on sharing it because somewhere there's somebody who's going to hear it as what it is. Those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is what it is. And for those of us who have experienced the cross and the forgiveness that it provides... We see it as the source of power and strength for so many other areas, every area of our life. So we take our burdens to Him, and we experience in Him restoration and peace and forgiveness and healing. So look at, look at what it says there in verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now that, that implies a process. That tells us clearly that there's a process going on. And what's interesting about this is that the work of God is a past tense event that continues in our life until an ultimate completion conclusion. It says in, in Romans 8, 24, salvation is something that took place in our past. It says, for this hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. It's a past tense event. It's something that happened back there. In Ephesians 2, 5, it says, By grace you have been saved. That is the current state that we find ourselves in. And yet in this passage and over in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, it says that we continue to be saved. We are in the process of being saved all the way, Philippians 1, 6, and 7, until its completion in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is something that happened, 
is happening and will conclude at some day in the, in the future. So we can sit back and say, well, I've got it made. I don't need to change anymore. Everything's taken care of. The only people who don't need to, the only ones who can really say, I'm done changing are those that are dead, and they don't say much. <coughs> this salvation is something that takes place when God reveals himself to us in our past, and then it's, it's characterized by what someone called this past week pockmarks of his working in our lives. He continues to work with us as he takes us along on this journey. And friends, here's our reality. We are complete, as one, one version quotes uh, Colossians 2.10 is saying, we are complete in him, we are fully accepted in him, we are completely redeemed. We are, according to Ephesians 2, seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, you are spiritually seated in Christ in heavenly places. All of this is absolutely complete done. And at the same time, 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's all done and in process both at the same time. Figure it out, write a book, be a millionaire. It is a completely finished, ongoing work, continuing transformation of who we are into who he is. I was talking with a, I have a buddy who's a research prof up at the U in the neurobiology, in the neurobiology department. I was talking with him a few weeks ago, and he said, he said the human brain has 100 billion neurons in it. And when you have 100 billion neurons, you are as human as you're ever going to be. That is the pinnacle of what it means to be you. Because from then on, look on the dark side, it's all downhill. Because we lose them every day. Breathing the air in Salt Lake City, I'm killing neurons every day, right? When you have 100 billion neurons, you are at the peak, the epitome of what it means to be you. Now, when do you think you have those 100 billion neurons? At what stage of our development do you think we finally reach the top and then we start tapering off? You wanna know when it is? You ready for this? Four weeks of conception. Oh, holy night. They are measurable transuterally at seven weeks of conception. That means that before many of our mothers knew that we were a life, <laughs> we were the most we would ever have. And from there on, it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> and the good news is, you know. So I was completely human. Now, we had our granddaughter spend the night with us last night. Try, try telling a five-year-old they're a little kid. See how well that goes over. I'm not a little kid. I'm a big kid. All right. I remember one time my dad told somebody he was in kindergarten. I was quick to correct him. I wasn't in kindergarten. I was in kindergarten two. <laughs> that means the second semester of kindergarten. But bless God, it's not kindergarten. That's for the little kid, right? So I'm, I'm big there. And there's coming a day where I'm going to be complete. I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing better in 10 years from now than I'm doing right now. And I'm doing better now than I was 10 years ago. I was complete at four weeks of conception. I was completely human when I was five. I'm completely human now. And this, con this continues to be a transforming process all the way until the day of the Lord Jesus when it will find its completion in Him. 
a present tense reality that we find ourselves in that was rooted in a past tense fact will find its culmination in future completion. And for those of us who are in the process of being saved, we recognize that it's not about us. It's not something we, it's beyond us. It's outside of us. It is rooted, as he said in 18 and 19, it is the power of God. <laughs> we can't cause it. We cannot continue it. All we can do is submit to it. Because, friends, this is the power of God working in our lives. And aren't you glad he's working in yours? Somebody said amen? That's it. And, friends, for those of us who, after accepting Christ, experienced our first night of sleep with forgiveness of sin, for those of us who are in the process of gaining victory over addictions, fears, paranoias, and emotions, compulsions, because of a greater reliance on Him, for those of us who are witnessing that have never witnessed before, for those of us who are praying for folks that never prayed before, looking for ways to serve Him, we are at the place where we can more easily agree with Paul in Romans chapter 1, when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. I have experienced it myself. It is the power of God, and I am not ashamed. That's what he's saying. And for those of us who walk in that and continue this transforming process, we can understand how Paul got there. You've experienced it. It is real. Look in verse 19. As it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning... I will thwart. It's a partial quote from Isaiah 29, 14. So we have verses 18 and 19, and now what he's going to do in verses 20 through 25 is explain that verse 19. He's going to explain how he thwarts the discernment of the discerning. Look what it says in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I think that's an extremely interesting verse in light of where Paul had just been prior to his visit to Corinth. Now look over in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is the chapter before Corinth. And 18 is when he's in Corinth. And in 17, we have everything that's leading up to it. And what was happening prior to his getting there? What informed, what helped him decide the approach he was going to take in Corinth? It's everything that happened in 17. And when we look in Acts chapter 17, we find he started out in Thessalonica. There were some folks there that weren't open to the gospel, and they made that very clear. They caused a lot of trouble. And some of the brothers said, we've got to get Paul out of here. They're going to kill him. So they pick him up and move him out. They take him down to Berea. It says the Bible says that the Bereans were more excellent than the Thessalonians because they searched the Word of God to see if what Paul said was true. They went home Sunday afternoon, of course it was Saturday, and checked out the, the, you know, their copy of the law to find out what, what he said in there really. Yeah, it's in there. They went to the Word. Those Bereans did. But then some folks from Thessalonica came down and they started causing trouble. And so look there in verse seven, chapter 17, verse 14. It says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. Verse 15, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. We've got to get this guy out of here. We've got to get him out of town. And so when they got him to Athens, he sent for his buddies Silas and Timothy. And while he's waiting for them, he decided to go do some sightseeing. Okay, and in Athens, in Athens, he found the seat of Greek philosophy. Athens was the seat of everything philosophical about Greece. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, morons. They all lived 
name that movie. They all lived in Athens. They were like really smart, like stable geniuses, okay, in Athens. You'll get that on the way home. But anyway, when here's what happened. The Greek Empire had devoted itself to developing philosophy and logic and creating an environment where that could be transmitted and debated. The center of philosophical and logical thought for the Greeks was Athens. When Rome overtook Greece, Rome didn't have time to worry about philosophy or logic or any of that kind of nonsense. So what they did, they said, we're just going to adopt Greek philosophy, and Athens can remain the center of philosophical and logical consideration for the Roman Empire also. So in the day of Paul, Athens is still the philosophical center of the world. And so now he finds himself there, and he goes to a place in Athens called the Areopagus. I got a, I got a picture. One of my daughters-in-law sent me a picture of her feet with her Bible on her knees, open to Acts 17, sitting on top of the Areopagus. That's cool right there. And he stood on top of the area, and this is where all of the brilliant ones, the bright ones, the, the best and the greatest, they all congregated. And look at what happens there in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Look down at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again on this. Athens is an interesting city in the travels of Paul because... There were a few who got saved here, but it's one of those cities where Paul did not leave a church. He tried to reason them into, into a relationship with Jesus. He tried to logic them into it. He tried to prove to them by progressive, rational thinking that Jesus is reasonable. Well, he is reasonable, and we're thankful for apologetics and all of, the, all of those who work in the apologetics field. But friends, when it comes right down to it, Paul looked at his experience in chapter 17, saw the inadequacy of it, and in chapter 18, when he got down to Corinth, he, he, he approaches from a different tack. And he does look back, look back in 1 Corinthians. Pastor Kevin's going to be speaking to us out of this next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you... Brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He learned. I didn't come to you with lofty speech. or I came preaching nothing but Jesus. And so in chapter 1, verse 20, when he asks, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He knew where they were. They were in Athens. He had just come from there. He knew where those people were. And look at what he does there. There are three classes that he deals with. First off, where are the wise? That's the root for our word Sophia. You kids, grandkids, self that's named Sophia, it means wisdom. Those that are trained, that have learned to apply training to practical life, that's what that's talking about. Where are the scribes? That's, the word, that's our word for grammarian. That's the one that says you can never end a sentence with a participation. 
<laughs> I passed English, I really did. So those are the grammatical, okay, we've got to get it right. And the third one is the debaters, those who are going to say, well, there has to be a better way of saying that, even though the conclusion they come up with is so marginally different from the initial statement, it's hardly worth it. But there are always those who are going to say, yeah, but you shouldn't have said it that way. Here's an idea you shouldn't have said. Anyway, those are the three classes that Paul is dealing with here. And look at what he says back in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, you rest in the wisdom of men when that person's gone, when that man, that woman's not in your room anymore. You're gonna, it's easy to forget what they said. <laughs> But when it's rested in the power of God of what He's doing in your life, this ongoing, progressive, continual work of God in your life, that you will remember. It's almost as if He said, I learned my lesson in Athens. I'm not relying on logic anymore. This is God's work, and if He doesn't show up, we are all sunk. And no matter how brilliant we try to prove ourselves to be, it just does not satisfy, because look there in verse 20. <laughs> Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That word made foolish is an interesting word. It's used, it's used one other place in the Bible. That's over in the Gospels. One of them is in Luke 14, 34, when it says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how shall its saltiness be restored? The word made foolish is that word lost its flavor. God has made it so that wisdom and Education and trying to prove ourselves by how much we know and gain status with Him by how much we learn, it just doesn't fulfill. It doesn't satisfy. How many of you have? How many of you have been put on a reduced salt diet? I'm really sorry. That is such a terrible way to have to. I'm sorry. That oatmeal the other day with no salt and it's like Donna, hand me that salt. <laughs> we got to have some flavor in this stuff. Amen. And the Bible says that what God has done is <clears throat> He has made, He has caused by an, active, by, by an active intervention of His will, He has caused wisdom to be foolish, to lose its flavor. And listen, no matter how much ed education, is, education is wonderful, wisdom is wonderful, get all that you can. But if you think that you can substitute those for the rest, the peace that we seek with God, and by wisdom, by searching, by logic, by education that we can find relationship with God, you will, at the end of the day, end up with a dry taste in your mouth going, there's just something, there's just something missing. Because, friends, He has made foolish <laughs> the wisdom of this world. It is empty at the end of the day. But God wants us to know Him. He wants us to know. He wants to have a relationship with us. So what does He do? Look there in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, couldn't find Him through wisdom. Friends, if we could have educated ourselves out of this mess, we'd have been out of it a long time ago. He couldn't, they did not know God through wisdom. So here's what He did. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
If God could be apprehended through wisdom or in searching for him, we would have found him a long time ago. We kept searching for God from the bottom up, and all we could come up with was an angry, vengeful God who demanded that we throw our children into the fire or the river, sacrifice them to him, or else he's going to destroy our crops. We reduced him through our puny attempts to wood encrusted with stone, and we called the created the creator. We did just exactly what it says in Romans 1, Claiming to be wise, see there it is again. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's how they expressed that foolishness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, <laughs> birds, animals, and reptiles. And after we had reduced him to something that we could wrap our minds around, wrap our hands around, and control and create to our design, after we had done all of that, then he reveals himself where? In Jesus. Jesus shows up, and he's so different. He's so foreign to anything we could have conceived, anything we've come up with. We have this angry, vengeful God who's out to destroy us, and Jesus shows up. And he corrects the scribes and the Pharisees, you guys better get it right. <laughs> bunch of dead, bunch of graves, you're all whitewashed on the outside, full of dead men's bones. He didn't, he didn't take any grief off of anybody. But friends, for those who came to him, he never sent them away empty. He never sent them away with a harsh word. You, you come to me, and I will give you rest. He showed up and revealed who God is from the top down and it freaked us out so much that we we killed him we had been looking at that rug from the bottom trying to figure out the pattern from that that jumble of knots and then Jesus revealed himself came from the top down and sure enough Colossians 1 15 he is the exact image the exact impression of the invisible God and it freaked us out so much that we killed him and so now, Paul says we continue to try and prove ourselves, and we do this in two approaches. Look there in verse 22. There are two ways that we do this. Verse 22, the, Greek, the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So Paul says we have a response to that. Verse 23, here's what we do. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So there's one response with two basic approaches. The response is, prove it. Prove it to me. And the two avenues, the two approaches to that response are, prove it to me by signs or by logic. Reason me into it. And I want to see either signs to prove it or have you reason me into it. And friends, when somebody puts you in that corner, good luck. <laughs> good luck. That is a corner that you just ain't coming out of. The Jews... Demand signs. It's fascinating because all the way through the Gospels. Matthew 12, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Matthew 16, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. John 6, what sign do you do? Matthew 16, and it, Jesus looks at them all the times they've asked for a sign. Jesus looks at them and very clearly says, it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. One of my bosses years ago, I was in college, directing a singing group and my boss was telling me about that day when he was a teenager riding his tractor in Georgia <laughs> and um, struggling with, God, where are you? Do you exist? Is it, is it worth it? And he said, he was driving his tractor, and he said, God, if you're real, then make a deer come out of the woods in that corner of the field. Prove it to me. Now, 
How many of you have not done it? Come on. We've done it. And so he looked at me at a similar age that he was when he was doing that same thing, and he looked at me and he said, so did a deer come out of the woods? And I said, I hope so. He said, and it didn't. Because we're not going to put God in our box of, you prove this thing to me, I want to sign or logic me into it. And there are going to be plenty who say, I want, I, want to, I want to hear preaching with power. I want to see power in the church. When most of the people who are saying that don't have power enough to drain water out of a bathtub. But friends, the power of the cross, listen, it's not in excellency of words. But it is in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And some of the driest preachers in history have seen some of the greatest moves of God. Not because of ability, but because God showed up. Because they said, here, do it, do it through me. Please, just use me. And friends, if we're going to continue with the great revivals of history, the power that was dem demonstrated in those revivals was not rooted in the miraculous. It was rooted in the power of a changed life. It was rooted in the power of a changed life. That's what grabbed people's attention. I knew old Leroy, and he was a rotten ass son of a son of a son of a. And he, he's changed. He's, he's nice. What got into you? Had a brother, he was orphaned when he was in the third grade, had to quit school, go to work. Married when he was 17, she was 15. By the time they were about 25, they hated each other and ready to get a divorce. And God got a hold of his life, and he got saved. And he came home, and his wife, she was already tired of him, started making fun of him and calling him the Jesus freak and all that jazz. Didn't say a word. And about six weeks later, she looked at him and said, I don't know what you've got, but whatever it is, I want it. Friends, it's the power of a changed life. And listen, I believe in the miraculous. I pray for it, live in it, couldn't exist without it. But friends, the miracles that God has done in front of my eyes or through my hands pale in comparison to the miracle of getting to watch my kids become and continue to become men and women of God. When I was 16 years old, and we prayed for Jonathan Wheeler, who was deaf in one ear. And instantaneously he could hear, and still hears, a lot of years later. That was an amazing sight. But friends, seeing what God is doing in your lives, through this church, through Christians that we get to work with, that is a far greater miracle than anything that he did with Jonathan Wheeler. Hearing the nurse say, we had we were with a brother, the fact is that same brother that got saved when he was about 25, he's an old man dying in the hospital, and his blood pressure was about 180 over 120, and they said, okay, we've got to give you a shot, and he said, before you do that, I want to talk to these guys, and so the nurse left, and we talked and prayed for him, and the nurse came back in and actually said, it's the only time I've ever heard a nurse, a physician say this, actually said, all right, what did you people do? Because his blood pressure was below normal, just prayed for him. I believe in the miraculous. I absolutely believe in it. But friends, if we're going to reduce God's work in our lives down to what he can prove to me, show me a sign, rather than God, I'm here, I'm yours, you do whatever you know is the right thing to do, use me however you choose to use me, then we have supplanted his lordship, we have placed ourselves in his seat of God, and you're not going to be comfortable in that seat. <laughs> that is not going to last. So what do we do? Verse 22, we preach Christ. Preach Him crucified. 
It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. We don't discuss, we don't dispute, we just proclaim. I like what one commentator said, neither sign shower nor, nor philosopher, he's just Jesus. <laughs> and that was the extent of Paul's message. Look in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 again. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 3, 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That was it. And the Jews stumbled at that because they wanted a military victory. Those never last. Those never last. But they wanted a military victory. And when Jesus is walking with them on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, they look at Him and said, we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. They wanted a military victory. They wanted signs. And He let them down. And the Greeks didn't get it because in Matthew 17, in Acts 17, some of them mocked. Now, there were some who got saved in Athens, but they mocked and He left. But look at what the gospel is in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, look at what it is. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What do you want? You want power? It's Christ. That's what it says. Christ, the power of God. You want wisdom? It's Christ. He's the wisdom of God. Whether Jews want signs or Greeks want wisdom, it's Christ. Jesus is the response to the request for power and the demand for answers. And we look at God and say, you're going to owe me some explanations when I get there. Friends, the only explanation he's going to give is Jesus. And he's already given that explanation. I want to see something really amazing. Then look at Jesus. <laughs> I like the simplicity of Paul's injunction to Timothy over in 1 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead offspring of david boy i like that remember jesus christ when you get in doubt and you're going to and you have and you will again remember jesus christ and when you're seeking answers remember jesus christ because he really is the answer that old 70s song did do a good job on that look in verse 25 why do we do this because the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men. Friends, Jesus Christ crucified is God's response both to those who demand a sign and to those who demand an answer because in Him, God's power, God's wisdom are made complete. They are displayed, made manifest, and complete in Jesus. Let's finish up in verses 26 through 31. Look in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. And in those three, we have the three great determiners of importance. Not many of you were wise, that's education. Not many were powerful, that's, that's power, governmental, persuasion somehow, anyhow. Not many were of noble birth, that's aristocracy. He deals with culture, power, and birth. He didn't come from that. But look at God's estimation of those things that we value the most there in verse 27. But God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Now, he has three couplets coming here. He chose what's foolish to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He chose those three couplets, 
Foolishness to defeat wisdom, weakness to defeat power, and nothing to defeat what appears to be. Years ago, when I lived in Mississippi, there was a, there was a low bridge there in Clinton, Mississippi, and um, a truck had gone under that bridge and wasn't paying attention to clearance, and it's a dipsy doodle. You know, when there's a hard rain, then that thing fills up with water and don't go through it during a time of rain, all that jazz. And it wasn't raining, but, but it was a low bridge and a dipsy doodle under it and come right out from under it on the other side, and a truck had gone under there and got stuck. So what are we going to do? And they call in the city engineers, and they call in the civil engineer, and they call in everybody, and they call in all the great minds around the city, you know. Well, this thing went for hours because they're trying to figure out how we're going to get this truck out of here. And there's some kid comes riding up on a bicycle, just this dumb kid, looks at him and says, what? Why don't you let the air out of the tires? And rode off. <laughs> he uses the foolish thing to confound the mighty. Can't you just imagine those guys standing there looking at each other going, you don't tell nobody, I won't tell nobody. And friends, here's why he did it. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No flesh will glory in his presence. No flesh will glory in his presence. There's not going to be any ability to say, look what I did. Look what I did. No flesh will glory in his presence. We're going to be able to say, God, you did this thing, and you did it through me, dear God. Thank you so much. No flesh will glory in his presence he has placed the holy spirit and the vast reserve and of an unlimited eternity inside of us intentionally so that second corinthians 4 to show the surpassing power it all belongs to god and not us he put this treasure in earthen vessels so that the power can be shown to belong to him And friends, in this Christ who is our hope of glory inside of us, according to Colossians 1.27, in that Christ, Colossians 2.3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the righteousness of God. He is the sanctification of God. He is the redemption of God. And redeemed is, is last. It's kind of like the gavel strike, kabam, to define the previous two. Righteous, holy, bam, redeemed. It's Christ. And the culmination of this progressive line of increasing and pounding logic it's found in verse 31 when it says, therefore, see now that therefore, this is the conclusion. Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want something to brag about? Boast in this, that you know God. That's a shortened verse from Jeremiah chapter 9. But let him who boasts, boast in this. <laughs> They're boasting in that they know the Lord. Because friends, there's no flesh that's going to glory in his presence. And if there's any boasting that's going to go on, it's like that old song that said, uh, look what the Lord has done. He healed my body. He touched my mind. He saved me just in time. I'm going to praise his name. Friend, it's all about, it's all about 
It's all about Jesus. Do you know Jesus Christ? I didn't ask, do you know about him? I said, do you know him? Do you experience him? Do you have those pock marks that continue you in this process of knowing him better? If you don't, you can know him today. And friends, if you're in one of those, if you're one of those who do know him and you're in one of those dips right now and a little bit stuck, oh God, where are you? Don't you worry about it. He's not done. He's not done. He knows exactly where you are. He hadn't lost track. He knows your phone number. He can get in touch with you. This is just another of those events that bring us forward in our in our walk and our maturity with him. But if you're here today and you're trying to prove how smart you are and you can reason yourself out of this and logic yourself into not having to think about it anymore, if you're trying to figure out the pattern of the rug by studying the knots underneath, friends, it's, you, you'll never understand it until you see the weaving from the top side because you've met the weaver. And that weaver is Jesus Christ. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, He'd love to meet you today. He'd love to reveal yourself and become your Lord this morning. It is as eternal and as simple as this. Just admitting, I turned my back on you. I did it. I broke your law. I said no to you. And I, I'm really sorry about that. You know, there's a certain maturity that we see in our children when they walk up and they touch the TV. You know, don't touch the TV, and they still touch the TV. You know, they call it the dance of the woolly monsters. They, they just keep touching it. And then there comes that day when you look at them, oh, don't touch that TV, and they go, oh, okay. I, I've been doing that. I'm sorry about that. Friends, that's what we do with Jesus. I did it. And I'm really sorry about that. Would, would you please forgive me of that? Would you forgive me of that? Would you take away the sin that has separated me from you? I'm really sorry. And I, I receive that forgiveness, and I receive it in Jesus. I recognize I can't do it myself. I've tried, can't do it. Jesus died for my sin? Wow, thank you. You'll forgive me? Here's what I'll do. I'll give you my life. I'll give you my life. I'll do what you tell me to do. Friends, there's a change that takes place, not because of a great sign, not because of great logic, but because the power of God, Christ, is at work in you. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let's take just a few minutes to just check ourselves, see how we're doing with it. Dear God, what, what do you need to work on me? And Father, that pockmark that I have been stuck in for however long and that I'm kind of getting obsessed with, this one's kind of wearing me out here. God, I want to ask you for continued strength right now. I need some of your power, not to prove, but dear God, to get me through. Father, as we, as we contemplate who you are and, oh, dear Father, what you've done for us, you showed us Christ. God, how can we say thank you enough? Father, it'll never be enough, but here, here's what we're going to do. We're, gonna, we're going to say right now, I give you my life. This fear that I have, I'm really sorry that I've been hanging on to that. God, I just want to confess that fear to you. It's wearing me out. This egotism I've been holding on to, the assumption that I'm enough, I can do it, I'm smart. God, I'm sorry about that. It's driven people off, it's upset my relationship with you, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> Father, my demand that you should make that deer come out of the corner of the woods in that corner of the field. 
I'm sorry I tried to make you a puppet on the end of a string. Father, how, how, how have you not revealed yourself to me? And I've demanded one more sign. I'm really sorry about that. God, please be glorified in my life in Jesus. So we're going to come and celebrate communion together.